0: All right, now, usually at this point, I say, turn to, and we start reading a section that we're going to study for tonight. We won't get there just yet. I've got to do a little bit of introduction for the book of Daniel. Usually when I do a, an introduction, I don't go into too, too much detail, but I want to just mainly cover who wrote the book of Daniel and what, when it was roughly written. Now, some of you say, well, why would you waste time? Did Daniel write it? And the answer is yes, Daniel did write it. But the reason we're going to cover it just briefly is, If any of you have ever done any kind of study of the book of Daniel, you'll find that there's actually been great debate over the years by so-called, in quotes, scholars, who debate whether or not Daniel actually could have written Daniel, because some of the prophecy that you're gonna see later on in this book is so specific, so literal, as to what was going to happen, many people have said, and unfortunately, even some Bible students have said, there's no way Daniel could have written it, because there's no way he could have known, specifically, what was going to happen. It had to have been written 400 years later when all these things happened. But I'm going to show you from the Bible itself, and I also have a scripture that I'm going to show you that kind of settles the issue once and for all. The author of the book of Daniel is Daniel. Look real quickly at Daniel chapter 8 and look at verse 1. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after, which, after that which appeared to me at the first. All right, so the vision appeared to who? And he wrote it in first person. It appeared to me, Daniel. Jump over to verse 15 in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So here Daniel says, when I, Daniel. Jump over to verse 27 of chapter 8. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Again, he says, I, Daniel. Jump over to chapter 9. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolation, the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So again, he says, I, Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 10. Look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, and so on. Look at verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. So let me ask you this question. Well, before I ask you the question, go to Daniel chapter 12. Look at verses 4 and 5. Daniel 12, verses 4 and 5. But you, Daniel, the angel says, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. So according to the book of Daniel, who wrote Daniel? Daniel. Now some people say, well, someone could have just pretended they were Daniel. You ready for the one that settles it? Matthew chapter 24. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 15. Matthew 24 verse 15. Jesus is speaking and he says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by prophet by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So who did Jesus say wrote the book of Daniel? Daniel. That one kind of settles it, doesn't it? If Jesus says Daniel wrote it, that's good enough for me. I remember sitting in seminary class years and years ago. And they were having a great debate over whether or not Moses wrote the book of Moses and how could Moses write the first five books because he wrote about his death and all this kind of stuff. And I remember raising my hand and I said, don't you remember where Jesus said, have you not read Moses? And if Jesus said he wrote it, that's good enough for me. Why are we wasting all this time arguing? I mean, we're spending days arguing and looking at the Q theory and all these different things. And for me, folks, I may be stupid enough. To just believe that Jesus said Moses wrote it, that's good enough for me. And if Jesus said Daniel wrote it, Daniel wrote it. Now, if you've got an issue with the fact that Jesus said Daniel wrote it, you, you really have an issue with is whether or not you're willing to accept the Scripture as the Word of God. And if that's your problem, I can't help you. Either we accept this book to be the Word of God or we don't. And we can't pick and choose what parts we believe and what parts we don't. That makes us the judge over the Word of God you really want to go there? Now, if some of you say, well, I don't do that. Yeah, you do. There are some parts you obey, and there are parts you don't. When the Spirit of God shows you what you're doing is not right and not in line with the Word of God, and you say, well, it's okay in this instance. God, You're actually setting yourself as judge. Do what it says. Believe the book. And so, because I believe this book, Daniel wrote it. Now, that gets exciting, because if Daniel is the one that wrote it, the words that we're going to be studying that are coming through this book are unbelievable. And the specificity of some of these prophecies we're going to get to in our study are going to blow your mind if you know anything about history. And we're going to cover all of that when we get there. So the first and foremost, the book of Daniel was written by Daniel. And if you run into anybody or read anywhere where they start to throw all this, well, what about this and what about that? Jesus said he wrote it. That's good enough for me. Now, go to Daniel chapter 10 and look at verse 1. This is the last recorded vision that Daniel has. And in Daniel chapter 1, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. And then Daniel goes on and gives the vision that, that he was given. Now listen closely. This was written or this vision, this thing that happened to Cyrus happened in 10, 30, sorry, 536 B.C. So if this happened in 536 B.C., most likely Daniel was written sometime after 536 B.C. as he summed up everything that he saw. But And he most likely had written it before 530 B.C. If you know anything about B.C. time, before Christ, that the years count, count down instead of counting up like they do in our time. So in 536 B.C., Cyrus had his vision, and then before 530 is most likely, sometime between 536 and 530 B.C. is when Daniel wrote this book. Now, if Daniel was around 15 years old when he was taken into captivity and what he began to write about began to happen, that makes Daniel about 85 years old when he's writing this book. And you're going to see as we get into our study, that's 70 years that he's been in captivity, in Babylon, which, as you're going to see later on, coincides with the exact prophecy that God had told the nation of Israel that their captivity was going to be for 70 years. And from there, a whole lot more will come out of that. So that's our introduction. Who wrote it? Daniel wrote it. When was it written? Probably sometime between 536 and 530 BC. And with all that said, let's just, let's just begin. Now I've changed my mind. We're not going to begin yet. As you'll see in our study, Daniel rose quickly in the ranks. There's something else I want to cover as an intro before we get into it. I've been wrestling with what do I do, what do I not do, and I think we're supposed to do this. Daniel rose quickly in the ranks of power and respect in Babylon, even though he was a Jew. He trusted God, he obeyed God, he honored his God, the God of Israel, while he was in a foreign land and with foreign gods. And it wasn't always easy for Daniel, but he became known and respected as, god's honor, as God honored him in people's eyes. You're going to see that as we look at this study. But I want to lay this out for you ahead of time. We'll deal with it more when we get there. But I really feel like we need to look at this for a second. Let me say this to you again. Daniel was taken captive as a young boy, as you're going to see in our study. He was taken captive as a young boy into a land with foreign culture, foreign gods. They tried to assimilate him into all that. But he stayed true to his God, to the God of Israel. He stayed faithful in his daily devotion. He stayed faithful in his times of prayer. He stayed faithful in his study of the word. And even though he was not respected when he was first taken captive, God began to do something in the life of Daniel and through the life of Daniel to the point that he all of a sudden, even young, became, to be, became respected by this ungodly culture that he had been brought into. To the point that all of a sudden he started being elevated in power and respect. And you'll see that all through Daniel's life. And I just wanted to share this with you as a setup and as a preparation for where we're going. The Bible's very clear that if you are willing to honor God, God will honor you. Go with me to John chapter 12. Look at verse 26. In John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. By the way, did you catch that? Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to serve me, you must follow me. And where I am, that's where the servant's going to be. We've turned it into, Lord, this is what I'm doing. I hope you bless it. That's backwards. We're to live our lives in such a way that we're actually following him and when we do that, and we let him call the shots, we let him decide where we go, what our next step is. When we do that, he will honor us. But don't, again, build your theology from one verse. Go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, I'm going to set the stage for where we're going because I only have time to kind of cover just a couple of verses here. But in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God is dealing with Eli and his sons who have been very, very wicked. And as he's talking to Eli about a judgment that's coming on him and his sons because of their wickedness, he also makes a statement here that parallels what we just saw. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 27, it says, And there came a man of God to Eli, and this man of God said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor." And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Here he said, "Look, I I I called Aaron and his sons, and I made the Levites, and I promised they would serve my priest as my priest. But because you and your sons have not been obedient to me, I'm actually cutting you guys out of that promise. I'm actually going to realign things. But look at what he said: those who honor me, I will what Honor. honor." Folks, I got to be honest with you. The longer I walk with the Lord, the longer I get this word in my heart, the more I've come to realize the scripture says very clearly and very plainly that if you're willing to believe this book and walk in obedience to God and be led of the spirit on a daily basis, you will be blessed. Does that mean you'll have no struggles? No. Does that mean you won't be thrown into a lion's den? No. But if you are faithful in the midst of it, you will be honored. What happened to Joseph when everything was seemingly against him? God Because Joseph honored God and obeyed God and didn't fall prey to all the other temptations that are around him. God honored Joseph. And he turned the trial into a blessing. All the way through Scripture, the Bible teaches that that's what God will do. And you're going to see this in Daniel's life. You're going to see it in, in we know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll get to later on why Daniel's always called Daniel. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are usually always mentioned by their Babylonian names. We'll get into all that in our study. But you're going to see that God is going to honor these young men because even though they're in a foreign land, in a horrible situation, taken captive, taken away from their families, they were faithful to trust the Lord and to still worship him and to honor him and to keep him above all things. And God elevated them and brought glory to himself in the process. I'm not going to have you turn there, but Proverbs 16, 7 says this. When a man's ways please the Lord, he even causes his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he causes his enemies to be at peace with him. What does David say on Psalm 23, verse 5? You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies, you actually honor me. Folks, let me say something to you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your struggle is. But the scripture is very clear. If you will be faithful in time, it will be proven that you are righteous. The Bible says that Jesus has taught us how to do that. In 1 Peter, it talks about how Jesus did not revile when he was reviled, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When he stood before Pilate, Pilate said, don't you realize I have the authority to have you either arrested or, put, or freed or put to death? And Jesus calmly looked at him and said, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it were given to you by my father. In other words, I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at him. And in this day and age when, when things are gonna get worse, I'm just gonna be telling, I know that doesn't fill sanctuaries when you preach like this, but I'm not worried about filling sanctuaries. I want people to hear the truth. Things are going to get worse. Oh, the world's going to be saying peace and safety, and that's what they're going to be preaching, and everybody's got to get along, and we're all going to be wonderful, and everything's going to be great. Things are going to get worse, folks. But for those of us who know the Lord, if you are faithful, He will honor you. Did you know that Daniel was even listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Go real quick to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verses 32 and 33. The Hebrew writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. Daniel's listed right there. He's considered a man of hall of fame of faith. And here's one last thing. That blew my mind in my study. Amazingly, even though the prophet Ezekiel lived at the exact same time as Daniel, they were contemporaries. And was, Ezekiel was taken into captive, captivity in Babylon as well. Daniel was taken in the first wave in 605 B.C., which we're going to get to. And then later on in another wave, 597 B.C., Ezekiel was taken captive. And then there was a the third wave later on. Even though Ezekiel lived at the same time as Daniel and probably was older than Daniel, even though they were contemporaries, when God had the prophet Ezekiel write his prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, he actually listed Daniel in the same words and same breath as Noah and Job. Go to Ezekiel chapter 14. Those of you that were part of our Ezekiel study probably remember this passage. But it didn't even hit me until I was doing my study That way, way back when we were looking at Ezekiel chapter 14, look at verses 12 through 20. Look at what it says. It didn't hit me that Ezekiel was talking about someone that he knew personally, who was alive at that same time. It says in Ezekiel 14, verse 12, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. But if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, those same ones, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and if I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send pestilence into that land, it's a disease, and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. A couple of things I want to pull out of this real quick. First off, is this Ezekiel listed Daniel as a man of faith in the same level as Job and Noah? Let that sink in for a minute. That's like somebody today, Thomas, saying, Man, God has worked mightily through Abraham, Moses, and Thomas Wilson. Isn't that amazing? If you were alive at that time and someone listed you with Job and Noah, wouldn't you go, wow. Think of the honor that Daniel had been given, that the prophet Ezekiel listed Daniel with Job and Noah while Daniel was still alive. I don't know about you. We always talk about the day when we would hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. What if God wanted to have people say, that person walks with God now. I think of the demons that said to those seven sons of Siva who were trying to cast out demons, uh, we cast you out by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And that the demons said, uh, we know who Jesus is and we've heard about Paul. Of course, they then said, who are you? And beat them all up. But listen, the demons even knew who Paul was. Folks, we're about to study a book written by someone who had life go terribly wrong for them. Taken captive when they were just a young teenage boy, away from their royal family, taken to a foreign land because of a judgment that was happening on that nation. Oh, by the way, that's the second part of what I want to pull out from here. We love to quote, 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And we hear Christians saying, all the church has got to do is just pray and it'll turn around. That's not what the scripture teaches. When God gave that promise, who were his people? It was the nation of Israel. He was saying, if the nation of Israel will turn, I'll hear and I'll heal. The reason why Nineveh was spared is because the nation of Nineveh turned as a nation. But what did Ezekiel just say? If God's decided that judgment's coming on a nation, it doesn't matter if Job and Daniel and Noah are praying. Judgment's coming. Oh, they'll be spared. But that judgment's coming. Folks. With the theology of is all we have to do is pray and he'll heal, forgive our sin and heal our land. If that theology were true, the tribulation period will never happen. The return of Christ will never happen. Do you understand the foolishness of just trying to take a verse and make it say what you want it to say? Oh, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. If the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? I'm not saying that we shouldn't still uh, seek God on behalf of our nation, but also Be like Habakkuk, who by the end of his book, when he was saying, God, what are you going to do? The righteous are suffering, the wicked are prospering. And God says, I'm going to do something. I'm bringing judgment on the nation. Habakkuk's final response was, I don't like the sound of it, but you're God and I'm not. And I'll wait patiently for that day. So, folks, it's time that we stop thinking how we can turn things around. And we started to say, Lord, what is your specific plan for my life? And how can I live that out in such a way that you get glory and you get honor and you get the right to do whatever you want? We pray you spare our nation. We pray you spare this world. But your word also says that one day a judgment is coming on the whole globe. We're going to pray that it is delayed. But if it is happened in my lifetime, may I be considered worthy because I kept my eyes on you. As you're going to see later on in our study of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were questioned. Whether or not their God could rescue them from the trial that was about to go for them, and they said he's able, whether he will or not, we don't know. But we're going to keep our eyes on God. That's a great way to pray. All right, now we can begin. All right, go to Daniel chapter 1. Some of you are saying, now I know I, it took you three years almost to do Matthew. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the 3rd year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his god. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his god. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. We're going to get our study from this section tonight. Now, before we go any further, we got to do some math. We have to start our study out with math because this will help us reconcile some of the passages of Scripture we're about to get into. Here we see that Daniel records that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jehoiakim in Jehoiakim's third year of reigning. Right? Do you see that there? In the third year of Jehoiakim, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jim, that is his first year of kingship, right? I'm sorry? It's his first year of kingship right after. Whose? Are we talking about Jehoiakim or Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's first year. But Jehoiakim's third year. Or the 605. No, Jehoiakim is during the, the, captive, the, the during the 605 and all that. 608 then. Right. He's, he's okay. Go to go to go to uh, Daniel chapter 46. I'm oh, sorry, Jeremiah forty six. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Jeremiah forty six. Look at verses one and two. It says the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, the prophet concerning the nations about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. All right. Well, we got a problem here because we just saw in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jehoiakim in Jehoiakim's third year. But in Jeremiah, it says that that he had a fourth year of reign. How could he have a fourth year of reign if he'd already been defeated in his third year, right? Um, Different calendars. Actually, in a different way of counting. Let me explain, and I'll show you two from the scripture. In the Babylonian culture, the Chaldean culture, when they counted the years of the king's reign, they never counted the first year, the year that he ascended into power. So that was never counted. So if it said in the third year of the king's reign, it was really the fourth year. Of the king's reign. By the way, that's always been, as a kid, the hard thing for me. Because then they say, we're living in the 20th century. Okay, hang on. Which one? Oh, that's the 1900s. Okay, I got it now. I had to remember that a lot of times because it would always mess me up. In the same way as the 20th century is really in the 1900s and the 19th century is in the 1800s and so on, whenever it says the third year in Babylonian time, it's the fourth year in our counting. because they didn't count the ascension year. I can show that to you here from Daniel. Go back to Daniel chapter 1 and look at verse 5. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for how many years? And at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Now, now don't turn that three into two or four. This isn't, these aren't kings. Remember, they only did that with the counting the years of the king's reign. So, but they these guys weren't to stand before the king until after they had been educated for three years go to chapter two of Daniel look at verse one In Daniel chapter two verse one in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him and if you know the rest of the story Daniel is called before him at that time well how can he he hadn't finished his three years no he had finished his three years because the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign was actually the what the third year of King's reign because they didn't count his first year. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that'll help you with the math a little bit. Knowing a little bit of the background helps. Now, I want you to go back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. There's something here that you're going to see come out through the rest of our study. And it's actually through the whole of Scripture. We're going to kind of deal with it a little bit. Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Look closely at how it's worded. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, also with some of the vessels of the house of God. All right, stop for a second. Who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the ungodly king, Nebuchadnezzar? God did. You're going to see that this is a very clear truth throughout the whole of this book and throughout all of scripture. God determines... Who's in power and who's not. We're going to see how he raises up kings and kingdoms. But I'm just going to have you look at some scriptures with me. Before we go there, you might have been one of these people that's been sitting in Burger King fussing about the election. You're fighting against God. Go ahead. Mine says the Lord let. Well, that's not a good translation. I'm sorry, but the Lord let. That's someone trying to soften it. Let let me just show you from more scriptures. Again, don't build your theology on one verse that I showed you. Go with me to Daniel chapter 2. Look at verses 20 and 21. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So who sets up kings and who removes them? God does. By the way, if God wanted Trump to win, he would have won. I know it's going to make me get some emails, but I don't care. I probably won't answer them. Go to Daniel chapter 4. Go to Daniel chapter 4. Look at verses 13 through 17. By the way, a view of a big God will sure help you live in this world and it'll keep you from a lot of sin. Daniel chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 17. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud, and he said this, Chop down the tree and lop lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And he sets over it the lowliest of men. Who determines who's in power? God does. And why are we fighting with our brother? Why are we spewing across the aisle politically at each other? If we as Christians really believed this to be true, we would remember that our battle's not against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual war going on, and God's doing something for his purposes in the spiritual realm. And if he chooses, to not let the one you voted for. And by the way, I voted for Trump. Praying he would win, but the fact that he didn't means my God has a purpose and a plan, and I'm not going to get a bellyache over that. Go ahead, Sue. He did win. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> let me say this to you, to that. If you're going down the road of the election was uh, he won the election, and all the, is that where you're going with this? That he won the election and that they, they cheated on how they counted the votes. Is that where you're going? Well, let me say this. God, if God wanted him to still be in the place, he still would have controlled that. To say that God can't control how the voting goes is a small view of God. In my translation, in Daniel 5, verse 21, he says, The Most High God is sovereign over all the kings and sets over them anyone he wishes. Yes. He chooses. He picks it. Folks, again, we can get into all this while there was a look. We all got speculations. We all got different ideas. We all may even have proof and evidence of the fact that chicanery has gone on. If God can't take care of hanging chads, I don't want to worship him. He's got a purpose and a plan. Was there stuff that probably went on? Probably. We don't know. But I don't want to take my eyes off of God when the scripture says God controls who does what. He's bigger than all that. Go to Psalm. Now go to Daniel 5 first, then we'll go to Psalm. Go to Daniel 5. Look at verses 18 through 21. In Daniel 5, verses 18 through 21, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. God determines. He even made Nebuchadnezzar have the power that he had. And the fear of him was over the whole land and over the whole globe. But when Nebuchadnezzar became proud, God said, "Okay." And for a period, he made him live like an animal to the point that he literally ate grass. You're going to get to that in our study. Go to Psalm 75. Look at verses 1 through 7. Psalm 75, verses 1 through 7. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Go to Romans 13. Look at verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Again, does that mean we don't vote? No. Does that mean we don't pray? No. Does that mean we don't speak out into what we think is right? No, because if we've lost our saltiness. What good are we? God's left us here for a season to slow the decay on the earth. But don't for a second think that God is impotent and that human beings can stop what he wants done. That's what I'm saying. When you take your eyes off of God and you start to get a bellyache because of what man is doing. That's why. By the way. Were people doing illegal things around the time of Jesus' trial and his death? Were they having illegal meetings? Were they plotting all this stuff? Was what they were doing upright or underhanded? Was Jesus saying, wait a minute, guys, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Guys, guys. No, he kept his eyes on the Father because everything happens by his hand. And folks, it's time we Christians understood that can calmly live in this world and say if God wanted to stop it, he could. But for his reasons, and we may not know them, he didn't. If he wants to fix it down the road, he can. But we're not going to spend all our time trying to get something changed that we don't think was right and act like God is impotent. All through the scriptures, the Bible says that he's in control of who's in power and who's not. And to trust in him. Exactly. You're quoting Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. In other words, blessed is he who is not offended by how I run my world. By the way, the Bible also says that he not only gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, he also gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought these gold and silver vessels to the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. By the way, do you know that when a king would do that, it was his way of showing our God is bigger than your God. Our God is more powerful than your God. We're, our God's so powerful and your God's so weak. Our God let us go right into your temple of your God, take his gold and silver and put it in the temple of our God. Our God's bigger. Okay, hang on for a second. I wrote in my notes here. Um, why would God allow the temple items to be taken? I mean, we can see that the humans were disobedient and and were deserving of losing their position. But why would God let the Babylonians think they're gods, who aren't gods at all, why would they let them think their gods were stronger? Uh, Wouldn't he want the Babylonians to know that he, Jehovah, is the only true God? Why would he allow that to happen? Why would he allow someone like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were just young boys who really hadn't had a chance to do anything really bad yet, why were they swept away in the midst of all this stuff? Because he's got a plan. And as you're going to see, in time, he's going to show these other gods that he's the big one. And he's the only one. Don't get a bellyache over the short period. God doesn't look at the short period. He do not count time like we do. And to, to him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. We keep looking at it and looking at it with our eyes. Folks, it's time we go back to a view of a big, awesome God who's in full control and he loves us. The Ark of the Covenant didn't work out to him at one point. You actually are reading from my notes, Bill. Were you peeking in my notes? Go to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Go to 1 Samuel 5. I love it. Man, that means I might have been listening to the Lord when I wrote my notes. Because it lines up with what Bill just said. Go to 1 Samuel 5. He's up there with Job and Noah. I love it. Go to 1 Samuel 5. Look at verses 1 through 12. Look at how God can take a situation like that and bring himself glory. In 1 Samuel 5 verses 1 through 12, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon. And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon don't tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how these things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the Ark of God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought around to us the Ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the Ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the the cry of the city went up to heaven. Folks, let me ask you again. Can God take care of an election? Yes. Take your eyes off a man. He's in control. He's got the power to reveal himself, and he's going to when it's time for his purposes. And in the meantime, even though it looks like the evil are winning, we are not living for this life. Or even for America. We're living for the world to come. If you want to be one of those people that we looked at at the beginning who are going to be honored by God, You need to be one that says, Lord, I'm following you. And I'm not going to get sidetracked with all this other stuff. Because you've brought me here to be a witness. And you've left me here for a witness for you. Go to Daniel chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 9. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he be brought to the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God of Israel in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote in the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king their interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and the lords were were perplexed. Jump down to verse 22. In verse 22, he's told, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. He talks about how his father Nebuchadnezzar came to know that God was the true God. And even though you knew all this, you didn't humble yourself. And you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Many, many Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about sixty-two years old." Let me ask you a question. Was God able to take the fact that His gold and silver treasures of the temple were brought into the temple of their gods and the treasure of their gods and use it to bring Himself glory? By the way, this is where Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael come in too, and you and I. I'm going to show you real quickly in the time we have left that Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael all were taken captive, just like the vessels of gold and silver, and taken into a foreign land to serve foreign gods. But just like God could use the vessels of gold and silver to bring himself glory, he can use you and me in a country, in a world that isn't worshiping God, who rejects him in his ways. We can still be used by him in this land to bring him glory. Go to Daniel chapter 4. By the way, I hope as we've just been jumping all over Daniel, you're starting to go, I want to come back to the rest of that story. We will. This is an awesome book. Deuteronomy 4. i uh, sorry. Deuteronomy. Try again. Daniel chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion en- endures from generation to generation. Let me ask you a question. Who just said that? Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we don't have time because we're going to try to wrap up our study tonight and bring you back next week. But between what I just read to you and verses 34 through 37, you're going to see that God has used Daniel to interpret this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Look at verses 34 through 37. Nebuchadnezzar says, and at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. As his in his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar was given by God the ability to conquer Israel, Judah carry them into captivity, feeling like he was big stuff. He even stole the treasuries from their temple and put them in the treasuries of God. And God says, oh, don't worry. I'm going to bring glory to myself in just a little bit. Um, I'm going to use these vessels that can't even speak or talk, and I'm going to use them for my glory. And oh, these guys that are taken captive, these young people, I'm going to use them for my glory. If they're willing to let me just They're going to go through some stuff. They're going to deal with some stuff that's not going to be fun. They're going to be accused of things that aren't true. I'm going to have them go through the fire in a sense, but I am going to bring glory to myself through people who are willing to humble themselves and say, Lord, you're in control. Your will be done. And whatever you decide, I'm good with because you're that perfect. Those who honor him, he will honor. Those who serve me, must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And those who honor me, I will honor. I want to be one of those people, folks. Even if that means I get put to death or put in prison, because I'm going to preach that this book is true. Even if Christians don't like some of the things I say, because it doesn't latch up with their... Christianize American theology. I want to stand before the Lord and say, I was faithful to you and to your word, and I didn't get distracted by all the other stuff that's out there distracting us as Christians. I want to just walk with you and follow you. Now, we'll deal with their food issue in chapter one next week, because we're gonna get into more specifics about the food thing, and we'll get into all that. And by the way, don't panic. I'm not going to teach vegetarianism next week, okay? Because I'm going to show you from Scripture, Daniel did eat meat still, and, and st- we'll get to that later on. But we're going to deal with the food issue next week. But for the rest of tonight's study, we're going to look at how not only did um, they take these young men captive, not only did they train and school them in their language and culture, they also changed their Hebrew names that pointed to their God and gave them Babylonian names that pointed to their gods. Let me, if you want to write these down, Go ahead and write them down. Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. His name was changed to, as we saw in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, his name was changed to Belteshazzar. It's spelled in your Bible, so don't ask me to spell it. It's spelled in your Bible. And that means Bel, their foreign God, protect the king. Bel, protect the king. Hananiah, his name means the Lord is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach which means command of Aku, that's one of their foreign gods. Mishael's name meant who is like the Lord. His name was changed to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. Azariah, his name meant the Lord is my helper. But his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo or Nego, depending on how you want to spell it in English which is their god of vegetation. So one name was God is my judge. Another one, the Lord is gracious. Another one, who's like the Lord. Another one, the Lord is my helper. And all of their names were changed to worship their foreign gods, Bel, Aku, and Nebo. If you don't turn there now, but go look at Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1, you'll see their foreign god, Nebo, mentioned. What were they doing by changing their name To be no longer God is my judge and who is like the Lord to bell protect the king and who's like Aku? What were they doing? They were changing their mindset to become worshipers of their God. God's plural. By the way, folks, Satan uses the same strategy. He's still using the same today. He desires to pull you away from devotion to the one true God and to conform you into the patterns of this world. It's happening on all different sites. He's using social media. He's using television. He's using the computer. He's using all sorts of different things. He's even using Facebook, which we're using right now to stream this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever use Facebook or shouldn't watch your television or don't use your computer and don't be on social media. In this world, we need to understand that that stuff's out there and we need to be alert to that. And the only way to be able to recognize truth from error is to daily spend time in this book with the Lord in prayer and allow the spirit of God to show us. Yeah, just stay away from that. Ah, I know what they're trying to do, but it's not going to work. And those types of things. But if you aren't paying attention. You're going to get sucked away and swept away. Some of you might have even seen some of this stuff now in the younger generation and all this stuff that they're starting to believe some of the lies that are out there about human sexuality and all this stuff. And, 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 and mom and dad, don't, don't talk like that. That's, that's racist and all this stuff. Folks, you do realize there's only one race, right? There's only the human race. There's no such thing as races. You look at the Bible, it says we all came from one man, Adam. There's no such thing as white people. There's no such thing as black people. We're all different shades of brown. There's one race. There are different nationalities the Bible talks about. And there'll be different nationalities in heaven. But the world is now trying to indoctrinate everyone into there's no male, there's no female. You can be whatever you want to be and we're all... If you even say say somebody's different, you're a racist. Folks, be careful. Be careful. We'll get into it in more detail, but... I started to wrestle with, why did Daniel always say Daniel, though, in the book? But over here it says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's bothered me for years. And I for years have said, why does the church keep calling them by their Babylonian names? Well, you know why? Because Daniel, when he wrote his book, would always call himself what? Daniel. He wrote the book. And he's the one, he would say, oh, they tried to change my name to this a couple of times he mentioned that. But he kept calling himself Daniel because he wrote it. And you'll notice here, he calls them by their Hebrew names, but then shares, just like he shared about his, what Babylonian names they were given, just like he was. When we get to chapter 3, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you go and look later on, you'll see all Daniel is doing is recounting the story. And as he's recounting the story, he said, Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He calls them by their Babylonian names because he's telling us word for word what Nebuchadnezzar said. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar would be using their Babylonian names. It wasn't that, oh, they just rather call the Babylonian. No, when Daniel wrote it, he always described himself as Daniel. And many times he calls his Hebrew buddies by their Hebrew names. But when he tells the story and he's repeating what the Babylonians say, he says their names that they were using because that's what they said. Do you see what I'm saying? go to Romans chapter 12. Look at verses one and two. I'm going to hit some scriptures as we wrap up here in the last five minutes real quick. Romans 12 verses one and two. You all could probably quote this, but I want you to see it. By the way, Paul has just finished a whole long treatise on God being in control of the nation of Israel and how he set them aside for a season of time, but he's not done with them. And he's going to bring glory to himself by bringing them back and finishing what he's done with the Gentiles, all that, and he's just said God should be praised. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do you see that word renewal? That's a repeated thing. That's a daily renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible says that daily we're to lay our flesh on the altar, not how we want things and let our flesh be in charge or how we want to call the shots. We're to daily lay that on the altar. And like Jesus did, here's my will, but I'm going to lay it down. Not my will, but yours be done. That's laying your flesh, your body on the altar. That's your reasonable service. That's your spiritual act of worship. And we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're going to be transformed daily by the renewing, renewal of our mind to a testing. Well, go to Psalm 119. Let me show you how to test real quick. Go to Psalm 119, verse 9. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. One of the first passages of Scripture I ever started to get in my heart when I was a young boy. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Did you catch that? How do we keep ourselves pure? How do we test what's good and pleasing and right? Against the word. Against the word. Go to 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. By the way, he's in control of all things. You might have heard that tonight. So that at the proper time, (coughs) excuse me, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. One last passage. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24. 26. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, do you think they might have tried to indoctrinate Moses a little bit? Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I don't know about you folks. I can't wait to come back and get into this book some more. But we've been given a challenge tonight. Are we going to allow the truth of God's word and the fact that God is sovereign over all the peoples of men, all the kingdoms of men, let that truth sink in so that we live at peace in this world? and calmly and boldly stand for him and test on a daily basis what's coming in, whether or not it's true or right, whether we should get sucked into it or not, and allow each of us to be able to be at that point where we can one day say, may God glorify himself through my devotion to him. That I would be known as a follower of Christ, not a follower of a movement. I love y'all. We'll see you next week.